thank you, team, for leading us so well. It's a wonderful song, Be Thou My Vision. You know, I'll kill a little time so some other, so the parents, some of the parents can return. I, one of my first jobs I had uh, in high school was to work in a music store. They used to have those. They used to sell CDs and tapes. And um, I worked in, in, in one of those, and I remember this cassette tape. Some of you young folk have never seen one. I think we showed one of our, to our kids one day, and they'd never, they didn't know what to do with it. And it was a cassette tape, and it was called the Pop Pop Song. Well, the Popcorn Song, rather. Popcorn Song. And if you're wondering, what on earth is a popcorn song? The popcorn song was a tape that you could play to get songs out of your head. And so if you had a song in your head that just wouldn't get out of your head, they actually sold the popcorn song that you would place in, and it, all it would say is pop, 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 and it was just designed to remove the song from your head. Well, I can tell you that Be Thou My Vision is my popcorn song. My family will tell you that when I, they'll sometimes hear me sing that, um, I'll start to sing that anyway, mainly under my breath, when a song that I've heard in a shopping center or whatever, just, you know, they can stick in your head. Well, Be Thou My Vision is my popcorn song, and it's a very special song. It draws us back. Uh, it's really wonderful to sing that. So strange little popcorn song story for you. But we are in the Gospel of John this morning. We find ourselves in the second half of chapter 11 today. And this morning, by God's grace, we will complete uh, this chapter. And as we come to the Bible and study it, whether privately in our homes or corporately in a church as we sequentially exposit piece by piece, we never must lose the forest for the trees. In our exposition of the Scripture, we need both the forest and the trees. And so, this Gospel here, John, it really is the soul and glory of Jesus revealed to us. This chapter, John 11, that we're in, reveals to us the sign of Lazarus being raised to life, which is given to us very kindly by God to fill our hearts and minds with the warm truth that Jesus defeated our enemy, sin and death, and that Jesus raised us to newness of life. That's what the sign points us to. Our passage this morning that we're in, in John 11, you see the funnel that I'm going down, our passage inside John 11 which is now post-Lazarus being raised, which we saw last Sunday, is about the wickedness and idolatry of the human heart and the sovereignty of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, let's go ahead and read our passage together and then pray, asking the Lord to aid us and bless us and change us. And so, John chapter 11 Follow along with me in verses 47 to 57. May God bless the reading of His holy and inerrant and sufficient Word. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come. And take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. 
Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country, near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And so they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew who he was, he was to report this so that they might seize him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for all that has taken place here this morning. Thank you that you lavish out of the riches of your kindness, you lavish upon us song and you lavish upon us your Lord's table. And now, Father, we thank you that you lavish upon us your word. Help us to be truly grateful, truly attentive. Would your word humble us and change us and transform us from one level of glory to the next as we behold the glory of your beloved son in your word and pray for any broken hearts here lord would you comfort pray for hard hearts here would you break them pray for unregenerate hearts here would you quicken and save them and pray for all the saints would you sanctify us we thank you in christ's name amen well the late R.C. Sproul, right, we, whom we love and appreciate at our church, with the same affection we have for men like John MacArthur, as example. Well, R.C. graduated in 1960s, and a book came out that same year that he graduated called The Secular City. I wasn't alive when it was released, but some of you were. Most possibly, you don't recall the book. But apparently this book caused quite the stir and quite the storm in theological circles. In the book, the author, a Harvard University professor, he wrote about the decline of the West into what's called secularism. We live and breathe secularism now, that's what we live in. Um, One of the key determining factors this author wrote about for the West drifting deep into secularism was pragmatism, pragmatism. And according to Sproul and according to the author himself, pragmatism finds its origin and is born out of, get this, skepticism at the ability to believe that there is an ultimate truth. That's where it was born from. That's the world we live in now, right? Where young folk now say things like, let me speak my truth. Have you heard that? That that is, that's sad, very sad, my truth. Today, the only thing young folk and not-so-young folk in our postmodern world are absolutely certain about is that there is no absolute truth. I'd never connected the dots like that before, that pragmatism is born out of that kind of postmodern thinking, because here is how they are connected. If we ask, as the author of the book did, 
How are we to live in a world where we cannot discern absolute truth? The philosophical thought and system of pragmatism comes down in and answers that by saying, whatever works is that which is true. Whatever works is that which is true and good. Now, if you read or listen to Sproul on pragmatism, it's wonderful, he'll show you that it literally is nothing new. Even Socrates, for example, engaged in pragmatism, was caught up in it. Pragmatism, even though the decision or the decided action seems good, will only ever result in failure and problems and a complete missing of the mark and a failure to learn and grow and honour that which is set before you, namely the Lord Jesus for we Christians. And why am I mentioning this? Well, because here in our passage, we encounter really the master pragmatist, well, one of them anyway, Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Now, when the text says that year, it can sound like they changed every year. No, they didn't. He was just the high priest at that time and he was the high priest for the longest time. Our passage this morning that we'll look through has four moving parts. Four moving parts which reveal to us both the heart and nature of mankind and also the heart of our Savior. Even though here in our passage, He doesn't speak. If you're taking notes, I want to give you the outline up front like I sometimes do for you to hang your thoughts upon. And so we'll see first, as we journey through our passage together, we'll see first, number one, a serious threat in verses 47 to 48. Second, we will see a substitutionary scapegoat in verses 49 to 53. Third, we'll see a secluded place in verse 54. And then fourth and final, a superficial seeking in verses 55 57. And so may God bless our time together and let's dive right in with this first moving part, first heading, number one, a serious threat in verses 47 to 48. Look at verse 47 with me. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Stop right there for a moment. They convened a council. Last Sunday, we saw in verses 45 to 46, that as a result of Lazarus being raised to life with that very loud cry from Jesus, with that spirit of agitation from Jesus, you remember, at the ravaging effects of sin and death and Satan, we saw that many came to believe in Him, it says. But some, according to verse 46, did not. And what did they do? Well, they didn't run to Jesus, they ran to the religious leaders, they ran to report it to the Pharisees and therefore... Upon that report, a council was convened. Now, every time a council or a board meets, there's generally an agenda with various items to work through. This agenda, this meeting rather, had one agenda. One agenda to discuss the, the Lord Jesus, obviously. And it's really here now, finally, we begin to discover the motivation behind religious unbelief. You say, well, that's a paradox of terms. No, no, no. Many people are unregenerate who are religious. Religious unbelief is revealed to us now and the, the 
heartbeat of mankind in general comes to the fore. The agenda item specifically, look at the end of verse 7. What are we doing? Or you could better understand that. What are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. This man, Jesus, he is the agenda. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. When you're in conversation or even in disagreement, it can be so relieving to finally grasp why a person is saying what they are saying. It's a relief. It's a step forward. And here, finally, at long last, we get to see the core driving motivator of these religious leaders in their opposition to Jesus. So many things can just hide behind a wall, but eventually things are revealed. And here now, it's revealed. It's been well said that pressure creates diamonds. Well, pressure also reveals what's going on inside of us, and eventually, with enough pressure, what is the very heart motivation for our attitudes and our actions comes out. And here now, finally, the, the motivator for the antagonism comes out. They say he is performing many signs. If he goes on like this, we will lose our position of power and prestige. Now, we need to understand who's involved in this council. It says the Pharisees, but the Pharisees alone had zero power in anything judicial, anything legal, particularly executing someone. That's why the Pharisees had to hand the, the, the Lord Jesus over to the high priest. The high priest had to hand him over to the Romans. The Romans executed the Lord Jesus. They needed the help of others here. And when it came to matters concerning Jesus, they teamed up really, the Pharisees teamed up with the group so as to become the highest authority in the land. And that group is called the Sanhedrin. You know that perhaps, 70 or so members of the political elite and really the upper echelon of society, the bourgeoisie, with a couple of Pharisees mixed in for good look and good measure. That's who the Sanhedrin were. And they governed over the people of Israel, but they themselves were governed by who? The Romans. The Romans governed them. The Romans ruled over Israel as a whole. And so as the Sanhedrin played politics with Rome, they sought to scratch their itch, scratch their backs. And as they did that, then Israel could continue to experience and utilize necessary freedoms. And so this is all politicking. The ruler the president, if you will, of the Sanhedrin was always the high priest. This was a theocratic world back then. And so the religious high priest was given the leading role of the Sanhedrin. And at this time, during this season, it was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the longest serving president of the Sanhedrin. And so he knew how to survive politically. He knew how to survived. He knew how to suck up to the Romans. He reminds you of certain career politicians. They know how to repeatedly resurrect themselves time and time again. They play the game really, really 
well, when you think they're gone because of their pragmatism, they're pragmatic to the core, they're able to weasel themselves back in. Some of you are thinking of certain members, I know. But oddly enough, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin totally opposed each other. Absolutely opposed each other. Aside from when Jesus was involved, the politicians and the apostate religious, they have always joined forces since this moment till now, always joint forces against Christ and with Christ on their agenda. And they're doing so here. And so the heart of these religious folk right here, who were, by the way, entrusted by God initially to be the dispensers of divine truth and God's word, although having become altogether corrupt, they are saying in effect this. I want you to understand what they're saying. They're saying this. If we do not deal with this man, Jesus, he will stir up so much trouble that the Romans who reign over us and who we keep on our good side, they will come and take swift action. As they see a man, Jesus, who by the way is Jewish, they see this Jewish man creating a scene and then when the Romans come, that'll mean that our comfortable positions, our prestige, our place of power will be taken away because the Romans will hold us, the leadership, accountable for the righteous stir that that Jew, Jesus, is creating and we will lose everything. That's the heartbeat of what they're saying. Oh, how things have moved fast from that little week-long wedding in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine for the guests to now raising someone from the dead. These words here from the council reveal the enmity of unbelieving religious and political people and all people outside of the new birth by the Spirit into Christ. It's a very sad and awful enmity, which means hostility that exists in the heart and mind that is outside of Christ. No matter the position, no matter the person, no matter the power vested in a person, if they are outside the grace of God in the person of Christ, there is a deep-seated hostility under even the most well-versed of pleasantry. And what is to be revealed under all of that is an idolatrous heart. An idolatrous heart that clings to what it treasures as most dear. And to the religious and political here in Jesus' day, reflecting the heart of mankind in general, it was in their position and their power and their comfort and their expediency and nothing has changed present day. And so the reason for their hostility is found in their desire to hold on to their treasure. Oh, how the gospel remedies such a malady. Doesn't mean we won't continue to battle seeking satisfaction in treasure that never is designed to satisfy, but oh, how the gospel solves such a malady that mankind is in and that you and I were in prior to coming to Christ. Amen. I remember a visiting speaker coming to the church that we and the Pyatts and the Jardines and others are from in Melbourne. 
an Indian man came and preached, fine preacher. And he would say something as profound as that and it would be silent. And he would say, don't let the charismatics and the Pentecostals have copyright over amen. Oh, how the gospel solves this malady that you and I were in prior. King Jesus, he summoned us to himself. He subdued our hostility toward him, that enmity. He altered our affections. He even altered the source of our true and lasting satisfaction for life. He made us lie down in green pastures. He planted us beside still waters where our soul then finds rest in Him and the hostility towards Him is altogether relieved, all because of His grace, all from the bounty of His love toward us in Christ Jesus. But here, with their comfort and ease of existence under threat, they cry out, what shall we do? Their heart is rejecting Jesus. Understand this. Their heart is rejecting Jesus. Is he okay? Yeah. Their heart is rejecting Jesus, not for who he is per se and what he is teaching, but because he will be the catalyst for their power and prestige being stripped away from them. Understand that. Because that can be the factor in any heart here that is rejecting the Lord Jesus in this moment. You're not rejecting Him perhaps because of who He is and what He teaches. But like the people here, you're rejecting Him for what will be stripped away from you. It's a very sad and scary thing. It's a very sad and scary thing that that kind of rejection like here is not based on the veracity and truthfulness of Jesus' claims, but instead the rejection of Him is based on what would happen if they came to Him. Come to Him for peace and forgiveness and salvation. What's amazing is here that they were not willing to part with the treasure of this world for the treasure that supersedes anything that this world has to offer, the heaven-sent treasure, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is worth much more than this little treasure that you cling to. Never underestimate the power and the pull and the damage that this kind of self-love brings about, because that's what it is. It is self And then, after all this, we see now, right at the most opportune time, we see that in steps now, their cunning and their pragmatic, sinister, opportunistic leader, Caiaphas, who introduces for us now the second moving part of our passage, second moving part, which serves further to unearth for us the idolatrous heart and mind of unredeemed humanity. And also now we begin to see what I said at the start, the sovereignty of God, which overrides and reigns over all. We see now, number two, a substitutionary scapegoat in verses 49 
to 53. Look at verse 49 now. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. Now, I want you to skip your mind, your eyes down to verse 53. Look at verse 53. So from that day onward, they planned together to kill him. So we know between Caiaphas arrogantly telling his fellow council members, you know nothing at all, which is rendered modern day, you have no idea what you're talking about. Between that rude remark from him to his fellow council members and verse 53, which tells us that Caiaphas got his own way, are his words. And they are intriguing words, to say the least. He says, you do not understand, verse 50, that it is expedient which means beneficial or advantageous for us that Jesus dies instead of the nation dying at the hands of those Romans over there in that tower who look over us. Because that's what the reality was. They lived under that. That's the heart of what Caiaphas is saying. But God, via the pen of the Apostle Paul, says in verse 51 that it's prophecy. Look at verse 51. He didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. What's going on here? Well, what you have going on here is a man talking with pragmatism on his heart, political expediency on his mind. That is, he's saying that Jesus must die. And when he dies, all the problems for them like losing their comfortable existence, their place of renown and regard at the hands of the Romans, will go away. So stop worrying. Jesus is going to be our scapegoat. Stop saying, what are we to do? The answer is, you dummies, kill Jesus. And yet, at the same time as Caiaphas is saying this, saying it and doing it not as a robot, but saying it from the freedom of his own inclination, that is the freedom from his own bent, what's in his heart, which he is inclined to say, as he says all this, at the same time, his words are God working through those words as the ultimate cause of them, not as the author of their evil, but God causes those words by Caiaphas to be ever etched in human history, to be ever etched in the eternal Word of God, to show the ironies of all ironies. And the Apostle John has been eager throughout this whole gospel to show irony upon irony. Because inside those words, from the deeply hypocritical, nasty, political pragmatist, came words unwittingly from him, that spoke of Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial death. And so in God's sovereign way, like only God can, He took Caiaphas's words of murder and wicked idolatry and even blasphemy, and He made them, in their ultimate sense, words of gospel truth. You see, here's the thing. Caiaphas stood there, all proud and puffed up, thinking that he, by his pragmatic plan, would save the nation from peril and save their positions of power. 
totally unaware that God was on the throne. Not him or the evil council that had been convened. Because if you think about it, peril did fall upon the nation. The nation did perish in AD 70 after Jesus' death when those Romans that they feared did come and they utterly destroyed the temple and the city. You see? So Caiaphas' words, while they look strong and they look effective and they look formidable, pragmatic approaches always do that, by the way, hence the danger of such an approach to things, his words were actually weak and pitiful. They were weak and pitiful in regards to the keeping of his own position and the protection of the nation, Israel, as an entity. And so, ironically, in only ways, as I said, that God can work, His words actually conveyed the truth of the very gospel. Namely, that Jesus will die a substitutionary death, but not for the nation of Israel only, but for, as John writes there, verse 52, but for the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this is what the Apostle John is driving at when he pens all this. Understand, he wants you to see the wicked heart of mankind outside of Christ and the ways, of, the ways man will word things and say things and frame things, thinking from a fresh, fleshly, earthly level. And he implores and he invites the reader to read and see deeper than simply Caiaphas's words and see the truth that Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh, is the Lamb of God who is to be slain for His children who are not just of the Jewish ethnicity, but they are scattered abroad from every tribe, nation and language. John 3.16, the love of God toward the world so immense that He sends His Son not to die for all without exception, but He sends His done Son to die for all without distinction. That is not just from one distinct ethnicity, but for all His children scattered around the world. And so here again, for, for us, is further evidence that Jesus dies a particular death for a particular people and an actual atonement, not one that makes salvation possible, but one that actually saves His people from their sin. There is a significant difference between those two. I hope, this, I hope this is really jumping off the pages for you. The wicked heart of mankind and the evil intentions of mankind will never thwart the sovereign plan of God. Never. Just like it was pure evil for Caiaphas to scheme and to plan to murder Jesus and for the whole council of the leaders to pragmatically just go along with it, so too was it pure evil for the Jews and the Romans 
to place the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God upon a criminal's cross and crucify Him. All of it, though, was under the predetermined plan of God. So that God might shame the so-called wisdom of this world. That God might display the riches and glory of His grace by fulfilling the plan of redemption in His Son. You know, you can trace this right through the Gospel of John. John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, who, by the way, was a member of this council. Jesus says to Nicodemus that the Father has sent him into this world to die a death that would save his people in this world. In John 6, Jesus said over and over that he is the bread sent from God the Father into this world, from heaven, that whoever eats of him has eternal life. John chapter 8 and 9, Jesus spoke of being the light of the world, sent into the world by the Father to be life and light to all who believe in his death and resurrection. John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And then here in John 11, we read very specifically and we read very clearly, plain as can be, that Jesus did not die for all the people in the world without exception. Jesus died for all the people in the world without ethnic distinction. He died for all his children. And why? what was that death to accomplish? John says, to gather them into one. You remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17? He prays that we may all be one. You see, the thing about pragmatism is it's nearly always, almost all correct. Caiaphas was almost right. Because if Jesus did not die, then there are major problems. Caiaphas believed that Jesus' death would save him and the council from their greatest threat, the Romans. But he failed to see, like all humanity outside of Christ, that their greatest enemy is not what is on earth, seeking to take away their position and prestige and joy and comfort. Their greatest enemy is sin, death, and Satan, and Jesus came to destroy that enemy. Oh, how this passage reveals to us the wicked heart of mankind, and oh, how this passage reveals to us the sovereignty of God overriding all of that displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, here now is really the core of all this. Jesus and all that He was, and all that He taught about, namely the kingdom of God, was a serious attack upon their own little kingdom of self. That's what's raging right now. While you and I, by grace, through faith, alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any good works, while you and I may be here as members of the kingdom of God, while you and I live here on earth, there will always be a war in our heart between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And it will manifest itself throughout the week and you'll see it. And if you think about it, speaking specifically just for a moment about pragmatism, often like here in our passage, pragmatism nearly always has self-preservation at its core. 
the determining decisions that are made with pragmatism injected in is always self-preservation. And so while we've been transformed and redeemed, we still battle with the kingdom of self. If you say you don't, come, come and chat to us as elders. We'll tell you about how we do and how a Christian always does. There is a, there is a battle with the kingdom of self. And so let this be a serious lesson to us. The kingdom of self is pragmatic, idolatrous and wicked. It only ever causes damage to the precious body of Christ that He purchased with His precious blood. The pragmatism of Caiaphas only serves self and damages others. The gospel and the truth of the gospel and its applications, of which there are many, only serves to build up the kingdom of God and bring honour to God. And so the answer to win the battle that is going on between us, between the kingdom of God, of which we are members, and the kingdom of self, due to our unredeemed flesh, is Christ. That's the, He is the answer. The gospel points us to Christ, and He is the answer. And so take this, really, as God via the Apostle John intends it to be so here. Take it as a reminder, just like last week, to not look at the ground and the grave like Martha, right? Or to look at the earthly prestige and position and comfort like Caiaphas was, but instead let us look to Christ and be faithful to His kingdom. If you ignore the war within, you'll lose the war within. But if you look to Christ, who's won the war, will begin slowly to win the war within. You see? Be faithful to His kingdom. He purchased you and I through immense suffering and pain, a ridicule, and the pain of shedding His own blood. Therefore, is He not worthy of a committed heart to grow in humility and obedience and being the true source of our lasting satisfaction in our life. Is He not worthy of a commitment? When we strive, when we resolve in our hearts and then strive by the grace that God will give us to do this, we will avoid having our eyes set on our treasures on earth like position and power and comfort and anything else we seek to find joy in. And we'll have our eyes set on the one who has died as our substitute so to make us one body of one people, united to Christ and to each other, focused on Christ and focused on each other. Well, this counsel we saw in verse 53, it resolved to kill Jesus. What an evil, evil counsel. There's never been a more evil meeting ever convened in the history of mankind when the leaders of a nation formally resolved to kill the Lord Jesus. Jesus now decides to withdraw and focus on His children, that they might focus on Him. And that's the third moving part of our passage now, number three, a secluded place in verse 54. Look there with me in verse 54 in your Bible. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. 
Jesus discovered that the most powerful judicial council bent on his death and his demise had declared that he was to be killed, seized. Verse 57 tells us that the orders went out, that if anyone knew where he was, they were to seize him. And so, if you think about it, you have the 70-person members of Sanhedrin. You remember that it also included, as I said, men like Nicodemus. It also included men like Joseph of Arimathea. You know the prophecy, he was with a rich man in his death. And so at least in that 70, you have two who are very for Jesus. I mean, they'll give an account, not us for them, but them for them on what happened here in this council. But we don't know, we can surmise, maybe they let slip of the plan, we don't know. But we do, but what we do know is Jesus knew of their decision now to kill Him and seize Him, and so He got out of there and He spent time with His disciples. He evaded their puny plans. They're puny because nothing happens unless God the Father wills it so, unless it's according to His predetermined plan, anything outside the predetermined plan of God is determined to fail and fall flat on its face. And so this little town they rest in near the wilderness, no doubt Jesus was preparing Himself for what was shortly to come, because I want you to know, even though we're in John 11, there's still many chapters to come, we're like 10 days out before He's crucified. And so no doubt He's preparing Himself for what's to come. And this little town was far enough away from Jerusalem and the council bent on seizing Him and any of the shills who would, in the town, who would heed the voice of the council to go and grab Him and take His life. And yet it was also close enough to go back to Jerusalem, where He would be the final ever Passover lamb, crucified Lord Jesus. I want you to always remember that Jesus kept the law for you and I. He had to fulfill the Father's plan. He went to every feast and festival, and yet this time, in this final Passover, He would be the lamb offered for sin. And so while I don't want to say much about this secluded resting place, I do want to say that Jesus ordained this as a time to focus on His mission and also on His children, His disciples. I really believe part of this is that they might focus on Him more. And then off they go again. And so by way of implication for us, I want to say just in a little way, this sounds just a little like our Lord's Day gatherings, doesn't it? This sounds just like a little like our midweek home groups. Sounds just a little bit like the Christian faith in action. You see, Jesus needed this time, His disciples needed this time, and you and I desperately need this time as we live in a crooked and perverse world. It seems good and proper, doesn't it? Very fitting, does it not? 
that between a wicked world of councils and agendas in this world against Christ and against His church, between that and then between the fullness of joy and glory that will be ours in the, our eternal home, between those two things, it seems fitting, does it not, to be regularly engaging in a secluded place, like the Lord's Day. Receiving of Christ and His benefits as we fellowship with one another on Sunday, during the week, whatever means that takes place, receiving of Christ and His benefits through the means of grace, committed, like Caleb, to Christian living. You and I need this. It's a secluded place. Right here. Secluded place. The fourth and final moving part in our passage we see is a superficial seeking now. In verses 55 to 57. The Passover of the Jews was near, verse 55, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. The law, Old Testament law, required that you can't be around a dead body and then just rush on into the temple in Jerusalem. You have to cleanse yourself. So many of them would go out into the countryside for a time and they would purify themselves, make sure that they, they kept the law. Then the Passover arrives, people arrive, and they're seeking for Jesus. And they're saying, what do you think? That He will not come to the feast, of, feast at all? They are eager. They are eager to see Jesus. They have some type of seeking of Jesus, but it's superficial because these same people, what will they do very soon? They will call out, crucify Him. The same heart and the same mouth that said, blessed is He will also say, crucify Him. This is a superficial seeking. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, as I said, they gave orders. The orders were out. That if you see Him, you are to seize Him. I imagine there'd be punishment for not seizing Him. And so there it is. John 11. John 11, a gift of God to us. Not simply words to read or sermons to half apply or half pay attention to, but very life to our soul, grace to our hearts and fuel for our devotion to God. Remember, our passage's application really is that the wicked, unbelieving world with their evil intentions as they acquiesce to Satan cannot ever override God's sovereign plan. The raising of Lazarus back to life is to fill our hearts and minds with warm truth that Jesus defeated our enemy, sin and death and Satan, and that Jesus raised us to newness of life. What a life. Let us live for His glory and for the honor of His kingdom and not our own. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, today is your day of salvation. You must come to Him and believe in Him that He died on the cross for you, that all sins, punishment and penalty was due to you, but He took it upon Himself and then He rose again the third day. The same way when you sat down in the chair that you sat down here, you trusted that pew to hold you, trust in Jesus Christ to die for you and you will be ushered in to heaven's glory.
and you will be part of this one secluded place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, thank you for goodness and kindness in the Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord, you said to us that if we believe, we'll see the glory of God. Thank you. Thank you for your love and mercy and grace. Thank you for this passage. Thank you that we have been spared from a wicked world. Help us to to strive all the more to win that internal battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Lord, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our bread and our water, our living water. Your son said his food is to do the will of him who sent him. Father, may our food be the will to do the will of you who redeemed us, ransomed us, saved us, and then sent us out. Help us to have a higher view of this secluded place, this Lord's Day gathering. Would you bless our time now as a church family in lunch in one another's homes? Would the extension of your goodness and kindness and love be further extended to us as we meet in homes today? Lord, anyone here who who has no place to go for lunch, would you sovereignly ordain that they would find a place to go for lunch? Because we want to continue to feast on the Lord Jesus. Thank you that your son was deeply moved within against sin and death. And that on the cross, he, he put to death sin and death in so much as that it will never have ultimate victory over us. So help us to live in light of what we've heard. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.